Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we are going to talk about climate change and a new report that lays bare the dangers that we face from extreme weather that is caused, at least in part, by the planet's warming. How do we slow the changes and how do we pressure policymakers to take this all much more seriously and embrace the needed changes? We'll talk about it all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. I'm going to start the show today by stating what I think should be obvious by now. Our climate is changing. Extreme weather patterns are becoming more chaotic, more unpredictable, and more severe. And this isn't only experienced with wildfires in Australia and California, but also with droughts in the American West, storms in Puerto Rico, and floods right here in Detroit. And as the climate continues to wreak havoc, every scholar who's taken seriously on this issue says the same thing. We need to do as much as possible, as quickly as we can, to switch to renewable energy sources. Doing that would prevent the planet from heating up as quickly as it is now. And it is that warming that is driving all of this climatic change. I don't want to be alarmist about this, but I do want to be honest the consequences of not transitioning to renewables are clear because some of those patterns that are already here, there are more deaths, there is more suffering, there is more tragedy, disproportionately hurting those who are, of course, poorer and black or brown. And even if you're not someone who's touched directly by these things, you'll likely be watching them from a screen. That portal will transport you to disaster. All of us sit and watch, I think, on television and on our phones. Weather that doesn't make any sense. Crazy weather that we haven't ever seen before. Some of this is inevitable at this point. We've really passed the point where we can completely stop the climate change that's driven by the planet warming. But a lot of it is not inevitable. There are things we could slow. There are things we could reverse. 
there are consequences that we could make less severe. The most recent report on the effects of climate change was produced by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It has a number of pretty stark revelations in it, has some recommendations in it as well. To talk about what that panel and what it says, we have Dr. Brenda Eckwurzel here. She is the Director of Climate Science for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Sciences. Dr. Eckwurzel, thank you for joining us here on Detroit Today. Thank you so much. It's really good to be with you today. So I, I want to start with kind of where I started in, in the open there, which is that we hear all the time now about climate change and we hear about the consequences and we see the consequences of it. But I don't know that most people believe or feel that there's a way to do anything about this, that we the planet is warming and whether you accept that it's because of the things that we're doing or some other natural phenomenon, there, there isn't a way to turn back at this point. There isn't a, a meaningful way or a practical way to stop this from happening. I, I would like to have you just address that idea up front and, and tell me if, if that's the wrong way to be looking at this. Sure. Thank you so much. That's so critical. Um, and one of the key findings from this most recent report and what, as climate scientists, we have been looking at is that every fraction of a degree of global mean surface temperature warming really, really matters to people's daily lives. And there's, there's no stopping um, the gains you would you would have in creating a world that is closer to today's global mean surface temperature compared to a world, the track we're on, which is what countries have promised with their pledges to reduce emissions, that is a very dangerous world. And that's what is really starkly, uh, we, we have a narrow window and we are on the precipice of that. And that is why action now is more more important than ever, because we lock in the next uh, several decades of warming with every month. Mm. You know, you just go out several decades. Every month of our activities are locking in the next several decades. And the diversion and, and div the expansion of risk, um, that bifurcation point is so critical that we're this this report perhaps is the most important ever released. So I also want to have you address the question of how we know and whether we know that this is all happening because of us. I think there are a lot of people who also have questions about that, who think, well, uh, the planet has gone through cycles of warming and cooling for much longer than we've been on the planet, and that this could be just part of that and and maybe all we need to do is figure out how to how to adapt is that the wrong way to be thinking about this? um it's a fair point and the the intergovernmental panel on climate change report has this great figure that that directly addresses that we know um from past climate studies 
on Earth through lots of evidence, buried in the rocks, ice cores, uh, you name it, at volcanic ash layers. We know uh, what the long-term temperature changes were and what the driving forces are. And we, we, there's a, a figure that shows um, a dramatic change in basically since the beginning of agriculture, about 10,000 years uh, before present, if you start about 10,000 years ago, global mean surface temperature, it, it's, we're hovering around this zero level because we're so used to that. And then right when you get to around 1950s, it starts going up. Mm. And then the projections for what we may be unleashing is way higher. We're already way higher than what humans have sown food, um, you know, harvested fish around the world to keep ourselves alive and the species that are uh, cohabiting this planet are used to. We are already in, a, in an unfamiliar world, but we can adapt to this because it's closer to the world we have. What we unleash in the future is what is truly, um, you know, what this report is all about. Hmm. So I want to talk a little about the IPCC uh, this intergovernmental panel on climate change, what it is, and what are these reports that they are regularly producing? Sure. And it's a fair point. We've been hearing about these for a while because this is the sixth assessment report. They come out over around a you know a year and a half period. So they are released every six to seven years. And the first report is released about the science. This is the second report about the impacts and adaptation and vulnerability. I would say this is what most um, is most important to Detroit and Michigan and, you know, what, what, what our lives mean here mm-hmm. and, and to others around the world. So it has about, say, 270 authors, um, more than 675 contributing authors, 67 countries have contributed their expertise, and it's approved by government policymakers around the world for the summary that kind of distills the top points. So policymakers ask for this because we want to know how is that going to affect our economic livelihood, um, risk to our citizens, uh, people living anywhere in the world. So it's really the most comprehensive report. It's just released, and it's the best understanding yet of climate change. And, and let me just take less than a five seconds to tell you one top-line quote mm-hmm. that they have, which I'd say is most stark, and listen to this. It says, the scientific evidence is unequivocal. Climate change is a threat to human well-being and the health of the planet. Any further delay in concerted global action will miss the brief, rapidly closing window to secure a livable future. This report offers solutions to the world. Mm. The window hasn't closed. We still have a lot of solutions we can deploy and and avoid this. And that language, it's very stark. It's very dire. Is it alarmist? Is it an overestimation of the danger that we face? I mean, I think that's that, that is also part of the problem here is that people don't necessarily believe that that uh, that we will face catastrophic futures if we don't change. Yes, uh, it is accurate. <laughs> I have been studying this for several decades. It has been. Um, it, uh, me and, and, and our colleagues from around the world who have been studying the impacts of climate change really understand the drivers. 
we can run global climate models and turn off human activities and see that the world would be much cooler today. We would have much lower sea level rise. We would have much less risk to outdoor workers in Michigan and Detroit who are trying to, um, you know, one of the things that's surprising is that with today's level of climate change, um, outdoor workers have, between 1992 and 2016, nearly 70,000 U.S. workers experienced heat-related illness or injuries on the job. I mean, these are the kind of things that this is already at this level of climate change, which is about, you know, close to a degree Celsius above pre-industrial or, you know, approaching 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels. Mm. And so we're already struggling with today's level of climate change and those that are out there working, um, you know, performing tasks that they have to do their jobs outside, uh, delivering us goods, delivering our, our, our keeping us safe during COVID and things like that. They are, have an undue risk to some of the risks of climate change today. And we don't want to get that much worse. I'm talking with Dr. Brenda Eckhorsel. She is Director of Climate Science for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Sciences. We're talking about the International Panel of uh, Intergovernmental uh, Panel on Climate Change and its newest report, which lays out the ways in which climate change, the warming planet, uh, is affecting our lives, affecting uh, everything on the planet right now, and gives us a pretty dire warning about the cost of inaction, the cost of continuing down the current path and not changing things uh, to be more mindful of the emissions that we produce, that fuel that uh, global warming. Uh, we want to hear from you as well during this conversation. Give us a call and uh, tell us how concerned you are about climate change. And tell me this, uh, we talk about climate change a lot on this program. We talk about reports on climate change. We have experts come on to talk about the things that we're seeing and the ways we, we need to change. Give me a sense of how seriously you take all of those things. Do you really buy into the idea that the, the 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 climate change that we're seeing, that the weather extremes that we're seeing, are the fault of uh, human activity and human uh, produced emissions. Do you buy into the, the the coming chaos that is predicted, for instance, in this report, if we don't switch to renewable energies and away? from fossil fuels. Uh, also give us a call and tell us what you would be willing to do to change, uh, to change our lifestyles, to change our lives uh, in a way that would be more respectful of climate and climate warning. Um, also give us a sense of what you would like to see our policymakers, our lawmakers do uh, differently to get us away from fossil fuels and toward renewable energies. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put uh, comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Dr. Eckwars, I, I want to drop a statistic into the conversation here. According to the, the IPCC report, approximately 3.3 3 
to 3.6 billion people on the con on the planet live in contexts uh, that are highly vulnerable to climate change. Uh, tell us what that means and tell us what that looks like. Yes, there are many, many people who live in low-lying coastal areas that are uh, at risk of being inundated by rising seas. And we see that there's going to be, when you have rising seas, there's also um, more powerful storms and tropical cyclones, typhoons, hurricanes, and these coming in on rising seas, but as well as being more powerful um, because the seas are warming up. That is a fuel for a lot of engine to these storms powering them. They not only um, place lives at risk when they say come on shore, this extra rain that is sweeping when the when these storms come inland and they come sweeping up, lots of times they might miss Detroit and they be a, go a little further east, but a lot of time, if you look at the swirl of rain that is dropping and the intense precipitation in the eastern parts of the United States, a lot of that are from these um, hurricanes sweeping and dumping their rain. And we know from uh, the change to date that they're dumping a lot more rain, which causes flood risk to our ancient infrastructure bridges, roads that just aren't up to this level of climate change. So you could lose your, your life, um, uh, you know, not heating the don't, don't uh, go into those waters um, that you can't see the bottom of on a road that you go through every day. It's flooded and people are losing their lives in their car uh, trying to flee, you know, or try to get home or try to rush somewhere and they don't want to go a longer route. Uh, and, and so forth. So this happens in our country. It happens in places such as Bangladesh, uh, parts of low-lying parts of Vietnam. Um, and they're adapting uh, because those places that have seen these extreme events, they start really making uh, adaptation plans more aggressively than other areas that may seem more immune. But we see also there's cold outbreaks from the Arctic coming down and freezing people in the winter when they are used to sort more mild winters over the past couple decades. And so one thing about climate change is that it is extreme heat is one of the areas that in many parts of the world, it gets absolutely uninhabitable during parts of the, the year. I mean, you have to have air conditioning. Yeah. You would not be able to be outside for very long. Yeah. When we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with Dr. Brenda Eckwurzel about the IPCC report on climate change and the urgency that attends our changes, the changes to our lives that have to take place to stop the planet from warming. We will come back to your phone calls and your social media comments. Tim in Detroit, Mary in Royal Oak, Kevin in Sterling Heights, you'll be up First, if you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. We've also got a number of social media comments that we'll read. You can leave comments at Facebook or Twitter, and uh, we can include you in the program that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 
WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking this hour about climate change and a new report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that lays bare the dangers that we face if we don't change the way that uh, we live on the planet. Uh, The extreme weather that we're seeing develop all over the place uh, is going to continue, is going to intensify, and the consequences of it are going to become more deadly if we don't move away from the use of fossil fuels and toward renewable energies. My guest right now is Dr. Brenda Eckwurzel. She's a director of climate science for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Sciences. Uh, we want to hear from you as well. Tell us what you think about climate change. Tell us how closely you even listen to discussions about climate change, which we have pretty frequently here on Detroit Today. Uh, how, how much are you willing to do? How many options are you willing to consider that would be different from the lives that we live right now in order to stop global warming. <clears throat> As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and to Twitter and put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, let's start today with Tim in Detroit. Tim, welcome to the show. Hi, it's uh, Tim from Detroit. Thank you hey. for having me. Thank you for the doctor from um uh, Union of Concerned Scientists. You know, Stephen, you asked earlier about the tone of the report. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say, this is not the first report from the IPCC. And one of the things that almost all the reports have in common is they say, well, you know, that previous report, we were too conservative. The, the, the situation's actually gone much further than we said, because the scientists are going to cling to the things that they are most certain about. That's how scientists function. Uh, but th- we, but in fact, we have more of a task in front of us than what they're laying out. And I just want to say really quickly, one of the most practical ways that people here in Michigan uh, can uh, affect their energy, make sure they get solar energy, wind energy, battery technology uh, that's clean, uh, is to talk to the Michigan Public Service Commission. Because right now they're trying to decide what kind of energy is going to be delivered from consumers' energy, which mm-hmm. delivers energy to a huge chunk of the state of Michigan. And, and that 15-year plan that consumers' energy is uh, contemplating right now has to be approved by the Michigan Public Service Commission. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is one completely and utterly practical way for, for many of the folks in our state to say, we're going to do something about our future we're going to demand from our public regulators that we get uh, clean, renewable solar, wind, and uh, clean storage technology. Mm. And um, that's my piece on this. And yeah, Tim, Tim, I love, I love that you called, and I love that you're talking about something pretty practical that people can, first of all, wrap their minds around, uh, but also maybe get involved and advocate for. I mean, I think that is one of the difficulties that we have is getting people to understand what they can do, what's within their grasp to make this different or to help push this uh, issue in in the right direction. Uh, Dr. Eckwurzel, I wonder what your reaction is to what Tim's talking about. Oh, it's one of the most critical adaptation options is tapping into people who live where they live, 
They know the solutions that will work for their communities and their larger communities um, because that is where change happens. And engaging with the local policymakers is so key. That's where change can go beyond, it can go at, at fast, faster paces than, than some national decisions, for example. Um, the closer you involve people who are living uh, with the decisions for their future, that is what's important. And a key part of that is understanding what's worth fighting for. Um, so, for example, if you know, we look at one of the reports, uh, we call it Killer Heat, um, in, for Detroit and the county where Detroit is in Wayne County. It, historically, the number of days over 90 degrees are about 12 days um, and only one day that's above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And if by, you know, just a couple decades from now, by 2036 to 2065, if we took no action on climate change, if we did not do some of the solutions the caller identified so well, um, you could have increased a heat index over 94, 50 days a year. And, and that's a very different kind of summer, mm-hmm. and especially within Detroit. And yet, if you were to take some, you know, concerted action, you could be closer to the level of the historical average. It's still going to be more days, but it won't be uh, that number of days. It's a very different, you're, you're talking, you know, you're approaching two months mm-hmm. of over 90 degrees with 50 days. Yeah, yeah. I want to read a couple social media comments before we go back to the phones. Marie on Twitter writes, in 1979 and 80, I worked for the National Solar Heating and Cooling Information Center, Franklin Institute, Philly. Uh, That was a national clearinghouse for solar information. Uh, Nine toll-free hotlines busy all day. It shut down in March 1981 by President Ronald Reagan. Imagine where we'd be today, she asks, uh, if we had not done that. Uh, Dave on Twitter writes, as weather worsens, I foresee more interruptions in power and logistics. We should be figuring out ways to reduce reliance on importing food. Michigan should be growing more of its own food instead of building housing on fallow farmland. Uh, Big Neo on Twitter says, to help combat climate change, citizens need the max solar panels on their homes along with zero-axis windmills with battery backup. DTE Energy has regulations blocking that, and the GOP always comes up with a myriad of ways to not make changes to make things better. Uh, Appreciate uh, all of those comments. Let's go next to Mary in Royal Oak. Mary, what's on your mind? Hi, Stephen. Thank you for having the speaker you have today. Sure. Um, It's a very important issue, and I appreciate you covering that. One of the things I just want to comment on um, your question of asking everybody, do they buy into um, that that language? I think you should say, do you believe it? Because buy into it kind of perpetuates that thing that it's um, alarmist thinking. Hmm. I just buying into, you know. But anyway, <laughs> um, the importance of what she was just saying about local level. Um, you have to be so careful at the local level in elections what the decision makers believe and what they're proposing to do, even at the city level or school board level, both in Royal Oak, but mostly in Troy, um, there was a well-identified uh, rare parcel, a large 96-acre parcel um, identified back in uh, 1998, I believe, <clears throat> to be a globally rare Lake Plain Prairie remnant. 
and the teachers all gravitated around the idea they didn't even know that existed in their school district. All the neighbors, organizations, people came, spoke at public hearings, and ultimately the board in 2001 decided to protect the parcel, and it was being used for education. Um, what a great thing. Um, it was actually in uh, their school district's nature preserve. But then, you know, 20 years later, new school board members come along um, and decide to dispose of all their properties. I mean, you know, school boards do have to fund their their large uh, um, student base and all their teachers. But the point is they decided to uh, not ultimately de- develop all of it, but a portion of it. And this had already been uh, voted for a nature preserve. So I think back to Richard Louv, I believe, that mm-hmm. wrote Nature Deficit Disorder and has recently written other books um, that children are so detached from nature and exploration um, and are all on technology. And that's great social media and, and use of computers, but they're losing touch of actual experiential hands-on learning Mm -hmm. that really has been shown by research to provide the most um, long-term learning for students. So I think the local elections, you have to ask what people's priorities are, um, if they own land, how they intend to utilize that land. Um, Yeah. Uh, Mary, I... I really, uh, I really love that you called and and brought up uh, a lot of those points. Uh, thanks a- again for for the call, uh, Dr. Eckworzel. One thing that she's talking about in particular, I think, is is quite important, and that's the focus on local policymakers, local decision makers. And I think uh, again, the there's a little bit of lost in translation there. For people to figure out, okay, so how should I be voting in local elections to try to have an effect on climate change and renewables and and things like that? It's it, it's something that I just just don't think frames the way people think about those choices. And even if it did, or even if they were inclined to let it, they're not sure exactly what kinds of questions they should be asking. That's a great question. I, I've asked that myself where I live. I mean, I'm a citizen of where I live, and and I go to these meetings with the local um, members in my neighborhood trying to get uh, better um, policies for renewables, and I run into barriers, and you advocate, you show up, you and, and when you show up, you can see the, you know, people standing up who are elected leaders and mm-hmm. suddenly paying a little more attention. So just asking the questions is even the first step. Secondly, as a, a scientist looking at the narrowing window that the IPCC is talking about, this is the decision decade. And you think about electing a policymaker that may serve a two-year term, a four-year term, a six-year term, and they might be reelected. That person is likely going to be dialing the temperature of our future, all the cities, all the places around. And and one of the things the IPCC really emphasizes is that cities are the places are going to be huge engines of transformation and deciding what the future climate is going to be. So you're sitting in an area where 
you have agency, you have change, and the local policymakers will make a huge difference. Um, one of the big things the IPCC emphasizes is most people will be living in cities, are living, a lot are living in cities now, and there's so many nature-based and engineering approaches establishing what was mentioned by the previous caller, like some green spaces, also maybe incorporating urban agriculture. These have public health improvements, but more importantly, you have to couple that with social safety nets, you know, nets for disaster management, mm-hmm. knock on doors during a heat wave, make sure our elderly population may be isolated, that they are not uh, keeping their uh, turning off the power because of uh, it might cost too much to keep the air conditioning on or not knowing how to use fans properly uh, and not getting to cooling centers during uh, dangerous heat waves. We have to be connected to our community and look out for each other to help make sure we survive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, again, Mary, really appreciate the call and the comments. Uh, let's go to Kevin in Sterling Heights. Kevin, welcome to the program. Good morning. Hey. I think the problem is not that um, the average person doesn't take global warming seriously. It's that the global warming people don't take global warming seriously. Hmm. If they were, they'd be looking at nuclear power. I mean, it's the only reliable long-term uh, or I should say short-term technology to combat global warming. I mean, France may like Jerry Lewis movies, but they have a huge success in nuclear power. And uh, at least as far as the nuclear power, we need to emulate that. Hmm. Uh, you know, Kevin, uh, that's a great point, and it's it's a point I hear people make a lot about about this conversation and, and the way it should be framed. Uh, so I appreciate the call. Uh, Dr. Eckwurzel, is nuclear power, which, as Kevin points out, it is the only currently available alternative that would produce the kind of power that uh, that we need in terms of usage, right, uh, our demands uh, on power. Um, should we be leaning harder into that space? What's interesting, I mean, it, it is in the mix of the global supply. Um, there are many issues, of course, and one of them is cost. Cost is quite high, very, very high. And when we look at the cost of many of the renewable energy, um, which you'll hear more about, it's, it's, it's much lower. It's also much lower than many of the fossil fuel options that we have. And the really amazing thing is when, when I have a storm coming through, I do have battery backup and I have solar, it's, I see my neighbor's lights going out, but mm. because the, 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 you know, the way the smart technology is, this is, okay, let's fill up that storage and not use, I try to use as much solar power in my own power as independently, but during a storm coming, I don't, it's powered up. And it waits till the storm passes because it knows that there's a storm coming. And the lights, you barely even notice the flicker. You see that the neighbors are all going out. And then usually the battery storage lasts through a power outage. When you're on the end of the line of a very large source of power that has to go through those transmission lines, you're losing efficiency and rather than locally generating it. But after the storm passes, you know, the sun is shining and you're up and maybe power lines have gone out because the trees and the ice storms have knocked out power lines. The whole distributed energy gives you little community hubs mm-hmm. of resilience um, with storms. And so I really like the distributed energy model for many, many reasons. And um, the cost really 
bear out um, if we had better policies for um, taking care of those upfront costs. And you would say no to nuclear and nuclear expansion? I say look at all the options and see if it still competes. You know, I mean, look at all the options and what you invest in over the lifetime of a project and how much it costs. And uh, also including, um, you know, I, I, I studied isotope geochemistry and looking at the bomb pulses up in the Arctic Ocean and measuring that for 30, 40 years after we blew up um, these atmospheric tests looking for tritium spikes in the Arctic Ocean, um, the, the fallout from... Um, nuclear, you know, how long these radionuclides have to be kept safe and you have to have signs that last for species that come by and see where you buried this stuff and keep it safe. Um, those costs are often not really factored into the near-term costs, and they should be. Okay. But the, even the near-term costs are extremely high for nuclear. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Brenda Eckworzel, it was really great to have you here uh, for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Coming up next, we're going to continue the conversation about climate change. We're going to focus a little bit more on climate change and what Midwestern states are doing to combat its worst effects. We're also going to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. Jason in Detroit, Robert in Detroit, we'll get to you. Hang in there. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and the Twitter and put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your connection to what's happening in Detroit. WDET is your place for open dialogue about the issues that impact you. Stay in the know. This is WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We just spoke about what is going on at an international scale with regards to climate change. But what is the Midwest, the place that we all live, doing to transition to renewables? How fast is our region moving on this issue? And what about Michigan? To get the latest on this, we have invited James Geniak onto the program. He's a senior Midwest energy analyst for the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. James, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. So let's start with your initial impression of this latest IPCC report, and then let's talk about what's going on here in the Midwest and in Michigan. Yeah, I think certainly um, the science is uh, increasing in in urgency of the need uh, for us to act, not only on on a global level, but really we need um, all levels uh, from local to state to federal um, taking action on climate change. And that involves not only 
uh, mitigating the our, our emissions to to slow down some of the worst impacts, but um, also taking steps to invest in, in our communities, uh, especially lower income communities um, that are most vulnerable to the effects of of climate change. Hmm. And let's talk about Michigan and how we're experiencing climate change here. Uh, how does this look different than it did 10 or 20 or 30 years ago? Sure. Um, here in the Midwest, we, we obviously don't, don't have sea level rise, um, but we do have a tremendous resource in the Great Lakes. And uh, what we've seen over the last few years is a tremendous variation in Great Lakes water levels, um, going from record lows to record highs. And um, that's challenging for uh, sensitive ecosystems along the Great Lakes, but um, also uh, threats to uh, property damage and, and other effects. And that's in addition to um, the extreme storms and, and flooding um, that you talked about in the previous segment. Um, another key area for the Midwest is agriculture. Um, it's a big part of our economy and uh, climate change is um, threatening uh, farmers and uh, creating di disruptions in like traditional planting cycles, um, as well as, as uh, flooding of, of crops. So um, we, as many other places in, in the world, um, we are seeing the effects of a changing climate and the need to take action. Mm. And what is the Midwest doing to really defend against climate change? More specifically, what are states in this region doing uh, that we should be taking note of? Well, uh, Michigan is one of uh, several Midwest states now that have announced and are pursuing greenhouse gas reduction goals. And um, the electric sector is one of the biggest areas of focus in the near term, um, not only to, to reduce carbon emissions from, from power plants, but because the, the main strategies that we have for, for decarbonizing other economic sectors like transportation and how we heat buildings is to convert those sectors to run on electricity. So we need uh, a lot of clean electricity available to power those sectors. Um, one of your previous callers mentioned the uh, Consumers Energy um, Resource Plan that um, people have the ability to comment on right now with the Michigan Public Service Commission. And that's an example of uh, how utilities in, in Michigan and other Midwest states are um, moving to retire old polluting coal-fired power plants and uh, replace them with clean energy resources such as wind and solar power. And the, the key uh, question is how quickly are those coal plants being retired and um, can we avoid investments in new fossil fuels like natural gas hmm. um, in that transition um, because natural gas is is not a clean fuel. It has significant carbon emissions, and it's also risky from a cost perspective. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us 
what you think about climate change, about the discussions about climate change, how much attention you're paying to them. We do it a lot, a lot here on Detroit Today, a lot in other forums. Uh, is, does it all amount to, to, to white noise to you? Because maybe you can't figure out how to change the things that uh, you maybe even believe need changing in order to slow the planet from warming. Uh, again, 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media, put comments there. Uh, let's go to Jason in Detroit. Jason, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Hey. Um, I just wanted to say that I'm I'm very supportive of, of the idea of converting to renewable energy, but I think sometimes uh, we forget that we can't really replace all our fossil fuel uh, use with renewable energy and maintain our existing lifestyle. We need to change the way we live, too. Um, I've seen maps of covering in you know large areas with solar panels, what it would take to replace what we use in fossil fuels with, with solar, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so coupled with solar, we need to we need to change. We need to tighten up our cities. We need to need to change how we grow our food, how far our food comes from and the way we develop land. Um, I, I just don't see it working without major changes in the way we live. And I think that's the hard part that's going to be, that's going to be the hard part to sell the people. Hmm. Uh, Jason, I, I have to say, I agree with you. I think it's one of the, it's one of the hard parts of this. Uh, James Geniak, uh, talk about the, 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 the switch to renewables and the amount of power that we're all used to in the, 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 I guess, on-demand nature of it. Is that something that we need to be thinking about changing as well? Absolutely. And um, a, a key part of our clean energy transmission has to be energy efficiency. And that involves um, technologies or, or upgrades to our homes and appliances to uh, be able to use them and and maintain a high quality of life, actually improve um, quality of life and the comfort of homes for people uh, while saving energy and, and saving money. So at the same time that we are retiring uh, coal and, and avoiding uh, gas plants and building wind and solar, we also need to be investing in um, our homes, businesses, and communities Um, For instance, there's a tremendous opportunity and need in Michigan to weatherize homes, um, make them uh, require less energy for heating and cooling. And especially if we prioritize um, investments in in weatherizing homes to lower income communities, um, that uh, has the potential, a tremendous benefit, um, not only to, to reduce emissions, um, but also to invest in 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 those communities, and um, so I absolutely agree that energy efficiency and um, also um, making uh, more affordable transportation options available to people, uh, whether it's uh, electric vehicles or strengthening public transit, um, is is another way that uh, we can make our daily lives. Um, cleaner and uh, also save money. Hmm. So I, I I wonder if you feel like that, that we're not doing an adequate, I guess, sales job on on that question with 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 most people that that um, that you've got to be willing to change some things about your life in order for this to work. 
Well, um, you know, the the key thing that, that we need is um, more uh, affordable technologies mm-hmm. and and more accessibility for people to uh, learn about those and have access to them. So um, we talked about having um, options to weatherize homes and uh, be able to have more energy efficiency appliances. Um, we need policies and, and programs uh, at the state and u- utility level that um, help bring the information to um, consumers mm-hmm. and let them know that um, uh, we have these options available and also uh, provide access to uh, accessible financing and, and lower cost capital so that um, these kinds of upgrades and um, changes to our, our homes and equipment um, can be accessible for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, thanks for the call uh, and the comments. Let's go to Robert in Detroit. Robert. Uh, I've got about a minute left, but uh, I, but go ahead. Hi, sorry. I originally wanted to say we need to plant more trees, miniature trees, so they don't um, have to get cut down with wires, and how that can provide shade for air conditioning, mm. less air conditioning use, and stuff like that. But you know, the last couple of calls and what people are saying makes me think: Why are we not making changes? Look what's going on in the world in Ukraine because of oil, mm. and it's like: Why are we driving pickup trucks? What are we hauling? I don't see anybody hauling anything in a pickup truck, and they're not very aerodynamic. They're gas guzzlers, and um, we're we're reaping, you know, we're we're reaping what we sowed by, you know, since inconvenient truth in all of the decades we've been hearing about this. There's flooding in our in our cities constantly, and there people are cutting down the trees we have, and there's nothing soaking up the rain, mm-hmm. and um, you know the. The electric companies are, are cutting up all the trees, hacking them up. They're going to die. Climate change is also making the trees we have die because they're not weather resistant. Sure. So, I mean, we do have to make personal choices. Sorry if I took too long. Yeah, no, that's okay, Robert. I really appreciate the call and those those uh, those points. Um, uh, I've only got about thirty seconds left, James Geniac, but 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 react to what Robert's saying. Well, in terms of um, managing our our flooding risk, Mm -hmm. I think investing in our infrastructure and, again, you know, communities that are most vulnerable to urban flooding, um, investing in natural landscapes is part of a local response. And um, as as we've talked about, um, urging elected officials at the state and federal level to help make cleaner technologies, cleaner vehicles, uh, more affordable and available to uh, consumers is a key piece of the climate and clean energy transition that we need. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, James Geniak, Senior Midwest Energy Analyst for the Climate and Energy Program at the Unit of Concerned Scientists. It was really great to have you here to talk about this uh, issue with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for joining. Thank you. That is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to have a really interesting conversation about the six-part podcast series called Into the Depths, which is about one woman's exploration diving into the history of slave shipwrecks. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.